Last month, after years of clinging to my cable package, I finally ran out of excuses. There's no sports on TV. Cable news is a relentless assault of depressing headlines. And the cable channel grid has become a sea of repeats. All that for more than $200 a month. So I gave in and cut the cord. But if the idea was to save money, my plan has already gone awry. I'm Alex Ewell. Welcome to The Readback. This week on the podcast, we're trying something a little different. Reaching back into the archives of Barron's, because every story has a backdrop. Let's start with something we've all been doing a lot of lately. Streaming new TV shows. When I think about the future of TV, it all started in 2013. That's when Netflix debuted its first series, House of Cards. We are not nominating you for Secretary of State. I know he made you a promise, but circumstances have changed. The nature of promises, Linda, is that they remain immune to changing circumstances. I knew you shouldn't trust that woman. I did. At the time, no one knew if it would be a dud or a huge success. But it had a cast full of Oscar winners, and ultimately... It delighted critics. The political thriller House of Cards is up for nine Emmy Awards, including Best Drama. That's the first time the Emmys have recognized an online drama among the best TV has to offer. And it wasn't just awards where Netflix was gaining a competitive advantage. Having its own original shows made Netflix a must-watch service. Today, it has 70 million subscribers in the U.S. and Canada alone, and the stock is worth more than Walt Disney. While original shows were new in 2013, streaming TV itself was already something of a phenomenon. Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu had all launched. Devices like Roku and Apple TV had been around for a few years. And investors were excited about what some were calling internet TV, or what Wall Street analysts like to call over the top. That summer, my editors and I were talking about what it all meant for the future of television. I ultimately wrote a cover story about how the internet was coming for cable TV. Was cord cutting a real threat? Were we on the precipice of TV's iPhone moment? And maybe the biggest question of all, how much were consumers willing to pay for the future of TV? To help answer those questions in 2013, I had reached out to Ali Yaragolu, a Stanford Business School professor who was studying technology and TV. I'll read his prediction back to you. Here we go. There's going to be more convergence between TV and the internet, being able to watch from different devices, much more on demand, things stored in the cloud, with recommendation systems. It makes total sense. It just doesn't mean you're going to be paying less for it. Ali's point, that TV would remain costly regardless of new technology, was a contrarian idea back then, but it's proven prescient. Last week, YouTube TV, a cable-like package from Google, raised its price basically out of nowhere, by 30% to $65 a month. Not surprisingly, critics on the internet weren't thrilled. If you paid attention to your inbox today, you might have gotten an email explaining to you why your price is going up next month. It launched at $35 back in 2017. Remember back then when we thought the dream of affordable cable would stay alive? Well, that dream has just been killed. So I got back on the phone with Ali to talk about why he had seen it all coming. Hey, Ali, how are you? Fine, thanks. How are you doing? Good. So uh, seven years later. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that long. 
Sally, what, what were you thinking back then when you shared that with us? One very common sentiment I heard when I would tell people I researched the TV industry was, I can't wait until Comcast goes the way of Tower Records and they get knocked out and we're going to, you know, basically paying a lot less and everything's going to be way better. And Netflix is just the beginning of that. Tower Records, for those who might not remember, was once the ultimate music emporium. At its peak, Tower had nearly 200 stores in 15 countries and more than a billion dollars in annual sales. Then came MP3s, iTunes, and the iPod. And long story short, Tower Records declared bankruptcy in 2004. So the idea back then, Ali says, was that TV would face the same pressures as the music industry. When people started shifting away from cable and over to a la carte options like Netflix, prices would go down. But TV wasn't music. Here's Ali. You know, the reason that didn't make sense to me was because the scarce resources in the industry are, are still the same. So the structure in the industry is still very much the same. You know, there's content being made by talent. It gets transmitted and somebody's out there packaging it and selling it to you. And, you know, Netflix entering really didn't change the equation. In fact, when I wrote this story in 2013, the other big assumption was that Apple was going to blow up the TV industry the same way it had for music and then mobile phones. Shortly before his death, Steve Jobs famously told his biographer, I cracked it. But Apple's big TV moment never came. Instead, the company took incremental steps, like its Apple TV box and more recently its Apple TV Plus subscription service. Basically, a few original shows that cost $5 a month. The money around TV was just too big, even for Apple to crack. In the end, Netflix has put the biggest dent in traditional TV, and the service is a deal at $13 a month. But really, it looks a lot like what we got from HBO for years. And if you add up subscriptions to Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, HBO Max, Apple TV+, and Amazon Prime Video you're looking at $55 a month. Add in YouTube TV, and the monthly charge comes to a whopping $120. It all sounds an awful lot like cable. And that's surprising, given that the big hope around internet TV was lower prices. I reached out to my colleague Eric Savitz, who covered YouTube TV's price hike to get his take on the news and what it means for the future of television. Hey, Eric. Hey, Alex. Eric, you wrote a story about YouTube TV's price hike last week. It's not often that a business just raises its price by 30% overnight, right? Yeah, it's pretty unusual. You know, YouTube TV, of course, is a what's sometimes called a skinny bundle. It's a way of getting cable channels for people who don't want to subscribe to cable. And they've increased the cost of that on a monthly basis to $65 a month from $50. That's not that skinny. Not that skinny. And that, in fact, adds like nine more channels to the bundle. And now you get like 85 channels to the bundle for YouTube TV. And I think your headline, by the way, basically said YouTube TV raises its price, starts to look a lot more like cable. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange strategy, particularly coming in the middle of a difficult economic period to go and raise your price by 30%. It's just hard to understand why they would do that. And I think it reduces the appeal of the service. People are cutting the cord, in other words, getting rid of their video service from cable providers and from satellite TV providers. And this was supposed to be like the stopgap. So that you can still get you know, cable news channels and local TV channels, that kind of thing, even without having an old school pay TV subscription. Yeah. 
So you have YouTube TV, right? Or at least you did. Are you going to keep it? Yes, I do have YouTube TV at the moment. I got rid of my cable subscription a few years ago, and it served me well enough. But honestly, I've been looking at alternatives, and there are other players in this market. You can do Sling TV, which has some skinnier bundles. There's a few other players in the market, including AT&T, but most of them are still, you know, like not as skinny from a price perspective as I might like. I'd rather pay for services offering deeper new content like Netflix and Amazon Prime. Right. Well, and, and I'm wondering about that because to me, I, I mean, I think, what does the price hike say about consumer behavior, do you think? And, and what does it have to say about like where TV goes from here? Well, I think we'll see, right? Because we don't know yet how this was going to affect their subscribers other than uh, in a case study of one, I'm likely to get rid of my subscription. But I think that, you know, in, in the current landscape, there's really three or four ways you can watch TV. You can get subscription services like Netflix. You can watch free ad-supported services like Pluto and Tubi TV and the Roku channel. You can uh, watch stuff on demand and you can watch old school like linear television. And I think old school linear television is dying with the yeah. exceptions of news and sports. And now there's no sports. And news, by the way, is awfully depressing. Yeah, I mean, the news is awfully depressing. So more fun to watch Tiger King, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What we're seeing and what we've seen in, during the pandemic is a, a surge in people signing up for subscription services. Netflix added more than 15 million users in the March quarter which was more than twice as many as they thought they were going to add. And that's just one example. I mean, we, we just saw a surge of users for Disney Plus over the past weekend when they debuted the musical Hamilton. And I think that that's indicative of what's happening. People are looking for quality diversion, not just the channel flip. Right. Okay. So Alphabet owns YouTube TV. It's a very small part of Alphabet's business. At the end of the day, they are still an advertising company selling search ads for the most part. If you wanted to invest in the future of TV right now, I mean, would Alphabet, given its stake in YouTube TV, be the way to go? How do you think people should be investing or thinking about investing in the future of television right now? So first of all, if you're thinking about Alphabet in terms of TV, its core YouTube is much more an important part of their story than YouTube TV. So core YouTube is still uh, probably one of the, if not the most watched streaming service. It's advertising supported, of course, not subscription based. So it's a little bit different story and sometimes gets almost ignored because it's such a different experience than watching something like Netflix. I think if you really want to bet on the future of TV, you have a couple of options, but the purest bet is still Netflix. Now, Netflix shares are trading at an all-time high, but for good reason. They have really thrived during the downturn. There was a period when everyone thought uh, they were going to get hurt by the launch of new services from Comcast and from Disney, and it hasn't slowed them down one iota. And they continue to produce new material, that, or at least publish new material week after week despite the downturn. And they're, they're as strong a player here as anyone and probably the prime pure play. I mean, all of the, there are plenty of other interesting options. You know, Disney is interesting, but is hampered by its current struggles in theme parks where they can't really open them. And ESPN has no sports to show. Like, there's some issues there. Amazon has done fabulously well in the downturn, uh, but it's hardly a pure play on video. So if you really want a pure play on video, it's kind of hard to beat Netflix, I think. 
What Eric and I didn't talk about is that it's not just YouTube TV. A rival offering from AT&T called AT&T TV Now has streaming packages that go all the way up to $135 a month. That's a lot of money, and it was one more reminder of what our professor Ali Yuragolu told us back in 2013. TV will cost you no matter how you're watching it. So I had to ask Ali, what will the next seven years bring? I think some firm is going to get in the middle there and basically aggregate these streaming services back up into a bundle. I think people want to be able to switch more easily between content. It just doesn't make sense for every for it all to be on a different bill and a different interface. I don't see what the value is in that. Rather than having separate apps for Netflix, HBO Max, and Hulu, why not have it all presented in one spot and on the same bill? You know, like cable. So is it fair to say that your next prediction, so we, we got the 2013 prediction, right? It almost feels like your next prediction is is the return of some form of cable. Yeah, I think so. Um, so if we had the unbundling, maybe we got the great rebundling now. I think it would make sense just in terms of keeping track of all the different bills and being able to navigate and search between content without having to, to switch apps. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I'm curious, how do you get TV these days? Yeah, so I saw there was a tweet going around a few months ago that said, you know, I was born in 1982, which means I get cable and all the streaming services. <laughs> people people younger just get the streaming and people older just get the, the cable. So I get everything, also for my research a little bit. So you pay more, basically. You, you pay for everything. Yeah. <laughs> like Ali, I've been loyal to cable, but now my cord is cut. We're all creating new habits these days, including how much we watch TV and how much we pay for it. Next week, we'll get another option in the streaming matrix. NBC Universal is launching its Netflix rival called Peacock. Get ready to pay up for one more tile on your streaming TV. Thanks to Ali Yuragolu from Stanford and to Eric Savitz, Barron's tech columnist. I'm Alex Yule. The Readback is produced by Meta Lutzhoff and Katie Ferguson. We'll be back next week.